welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Dr David Farrell, a lecturer in the Department of Applied Video Games, to talk about GCU's Global Game Jam and other aspects of the gaming industry. David, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, thanks Craig, good to speak to you. Excellent, I'm delighted to talk to you as well and I want to start by talking about the Game Jam. It has been described as one of the world's biggest games creations events. What exactly is the Global Game Jam? Global Game Jam, it's a global version of a Game Jam and that sounds, you know, somewhat <laughs> literal. But a Game Jam itself is a, is a strange beast. It's it's related to hackathons, which you may have heard of, and generally speaking, you get a bunch of people together to make a game under very tight constraints. Typically, some time period, maybe a week, or in the case of the Global Game Jam, 48 hours. And what makes the Global Game Jam unique is that it takes place at the same weekend all over the world, with tens of thousands of people all making games based around the same idea. How on earth can you make a video game in 40 hours? <laughs> you see a lot of AAA titles that take years in development. How on earth can you make a game in 40 hours? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, you make a small prototype in 40 hours. And actually, you can find something really interesting within that time period. What you can't do is to make something that's bug-free, that works on all computers, that explores an idea to its completion, that has many levels, et cetera, et cetera. But you can find that nugget, that special um, magic something that makes games special within that time period. And, and that's what you find in, in the Global Game Jam is that Everybody exploring the same theme at the same time means that that idea gets dissected from every possible angle. And often you can then go on to build a game if you want to, based on your game jam idea. Okay. So you mentioned there about themes, David. Does someone yeah. at the start pick a theme and then everyone who's participating makes something around that theme? Different game jams have different rules. The Global Game Jam has a, a board of you know directors and they spend a lot of time trying to come up with interesting and varied themes from year to year. Global Game Jam itself has been around since 2009. And you know every year they try to do something, sometimes it's thematic, depending on what's going on in the world. Sometimes it's about uh, really pushing the boundaries of, of how you even start to conceptualize approaching a problem like this. You know, one year there was a heartbeat as, and I don't mean a picture, I mean like the sound wave of a heartbeat was the, was the theme. And, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a, a video that just played without much context. You know, often it's a word or a phrase. This year's theme is a video followed by, you know, the, the message of the theme itself. Mm -hmm. um, and different game jams do different kinds of approaches to it. But the Global Game Jam one, it's, it's fun because, like, I like to approach it by first thinking of all of the obvious ideas and then just dismissing them and then trying to get to something really obscure or weird or or less literal but even approaching the literal thing itself is a lot of fun yeah can you give me some examples then of discarding all the obvious ideas and focusing on something a bit niche let's see let me think i'm looking at the themes from previous years so the side of a heartbeat one for example naturally people can can approach that by being about love or being about literal 
bodies and so on. Um, to, to explain how two different teams approached the idea, one team not based in, in our university, they, they made a prototype of a game that went on to some success called Surgeon Simulator. So they took the, the theme of the heartbeat and they made it about being a doctor. And it's a very janky, funny, silly physics type. Um, it's like a video game version of that board game operation. And then a team at our local site, um, they made a game using the actual sound wave itself. So the sound wave is the, the spikes and you know the, the sort of wave pattern that you'll be very familiar with doing what you mm -hmm. do. And they made a, a game where yeah, called Love versus Dub, where two players played on opposite sides of the line and they're running along the line and you have to jump across, jump up and down to avoid get, getting hit by the spikes. So if you look at that, that's two completely different approaches to the same idea. Other people make games about love um, and so on, and so on, and so on. So the, the way that people approach the problem is incredibly interesting. Has anyone made a game that's gone on to be developed further and has achieved like commercial success? Oh, many actually. I mean, that, that one I mentioned, Surgeon Simulator, it's a success. Uh, the Love vs. Dub game I mentioned, it, it was from our site. It was, it went on to be released on, on iOS and Android, and it became one of Apple's, you know, games of the week. And that that team ended up forming a company called yeah. No Code, and No Code have since won multiple BAFTAs, and they're, they're, a, they're a massive company now with a, a significant headcount, including some GCU people. And other famous games, Goat Simulator came out of a game jam, Super Hot. Bear of Goat Simulator, yeah. yeah. Uh, Super Hot, which is a massive, amazing, interesting game, came out of a game jam. I Am Bread came out of a game jam. Uh, and in some some commercial game companies use game jams as a way to decide on projects. Double Fine are famous. Double Fine is a game company that were bought by Microsoft recently. Mm -hmm. And they're famous for doing this thing they called the Amnesia Fortnite, which is a two week long game jam that they do between projects. And everybody in the company just takes two weeks to create little teams and they make little prototypes in the two weeks. And then they pitch their game to the rest of the company. And that's how they've historically at least decided how, which game to make next. Right, that's, that, that, that's, that's astonishing. Um, how long has Glasgow Caledonia University been involved with the game jam? I think we've been involved since year one year one i think i i was personally involved from year two so yeah year one so um i wasn't here when the the first game jam started so game jam was 2009 mm -hmm. the global game jam and uh, gcu's had a, a site every year the very first jam that i took part in which was the second one ever at gcu had about 34 people in it and our record is about 220 registering you know, so it really, and to be honest, that 220 was uh, limited by by fire regulations. We had another 50 or 60 on the <laughs> on the waiting list that we had to turn away. Now we know the game jam this year will look a little bit differently. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about that in a second, David. But what do 48 hours making a game look like when you're all in the <laughs> Alex Ferguson library? Tell me about that experience of all hands to the pumps trying to yeah. pull together a video game. I mean, I absolutely love it. Is the first answer to give. Um, in fact, there's there's YouTube videos of it if you want to see. We've had somebody come. We we had this extra. I'll come to your question in a second. But we have this extra thing that we do every year, um, and it's very extra. We we try to find somebody to make a documentary about this year's game jam during this year's game jam, and they have to film it, edit it, and then present it at the end of the game jam. So we have a little mini 
documentary jam. And what's really nice is to type in Global Game Jam Caledonian into YouTube and see the history and see all these different you know, montages and interviews with people. But typically, of course, this year, like you say, is atypical, but typically there's this incredible buzz on Friday night as everybody, everybody's convinced that they've got this most, the most amazing idea. And, you know, the ideas are amazing at that point in time. And they're making teams and they're, they're pulling tables around, even though we tell them not to. And they're, um, you know, starting to get going, lots of whiteboard pens, lots of stuff like this going on. And, People stay up way too late on Friday and we get pizzas delivered and the whole place stinks and it's really fun. And then by Saturday, you've got a bit of a lull as some people are starting to realise they shouldn't have stayed up all night Friday. <laughs> but but other teams are, are, are getting their game coming together. There's always one or two people that realise they've bitten off far more than, than they can chew. You know, you're going to do a massively multiplayer battle royale game, you know, and <laughs> all of a sudden it's 11 o'clock on Saturday morning. You're going, what on earth am I doing? This isn't going to work. So there's a bit of a weird vibe on Saturday morning. Then people get more excited. There's a big push Saturday evening. We often have uh, tournaments. Uh, we have a, a good relationship with this Scottish game company um, or game event company called Bethel Switches. And for many years, they've hosted a little game jam arcade alongside the, the jammers. So when people are getting a bit tired, they can go and play some of these games with their tournaments and stuff like that on Saturdays. And then Sunday is, is all focused. Sunday, everybody's tired. Everybody is worried they're not going to get completed in time. And there's this real sense of focus. Like if, if friends are popping in on Saturday to see you, you don't want them popping in on Sunday because you're trying to get to that finish line. And, you know, for some people it results in heartache, but for most people it's, it's a really exciting finish. And we always try to close out with a wee play party where everybody gets to play each other's games and, you know, we give out prizes for the most helpful people at the jam. We used to give prizes out for the best game, but that kind of took a bit of the the magic of the collaboration and the jamming away from it. So we, we keep the prizes, but we give them out for being basically a good person. You know, if somebody helps you with your code or if a, if a you know, musician records a piece of audio for your team, even though they're part of another team, you'll, you'll give them a wee, a wee nomination for a prize. And we like to finish off with this sort of common good vibe. You know, it's people yeah. helping people and, and feeling part of a community. That sounds brilliant fun, David. And it's real... It's a real shame that we're not able to have that this year. So what will the Game Jam 2021 look like? Well, I mean, part of me wants to say I'll tell you after it's happened because <laughs> there's a lot that can still change. But the very, very short of it is that we spent a lot of time trying to construct like the ideal Discord server for a Game Jam. So everybody's going to be hanging out on this one central server, but every team has their own private space on the server so they can have a little video chat uh, and, a, and a text area to share communication between themselves. But we've got you know, a group area that everyone can hang out in. But it is going to be very different because people can't be together. You know, we, we can't um, visit each other and be in the same room. And, uh, and that works in two levels. It means that we can't, as groups, be around the other groups because there's nothing better than feeling the vibe of you know, yeah. 150 plus people making games. But it also means that within one team, you can't be in the same environment as your teammates. And I think it'll be quite challenging for people, even though we're all getting better at working online. I think it will be challenging to find that mind melt that is, in my opinion, like necessary to, to make something special. You need to kind of become like one team greater than your individual pieces, I think. So does the Game Jam reflect elements of the gaming industry itself? 
does it reflect elements of the game industry? I'm not sure what you mean by that. Elements. In terms of the, the collaborative process, all working together, all working together to, yeah. to create something in a short space of time. So I think that game jams recreate the best part of game development, which is all the fun stuff. It's the fun stuff where you're making decisions, you're implementing systems that are hopefully working, you're seeing the impact of your efforts. And it's a very rewarding thing. And it feels just the same when you're making a video game and when you're making a game jam. The, diff the game jam game. The difference with a game jam is that you don't have to do all of the hard, boring stuff, <laughs> like making it compatible in every device under the sun, dealing with edge cases. You don't have to do the documentation. Um, so it, a lot of professional game devs like to do game jams, even though their day job is to make games, because it lets them break free of all the kind of um, restrictions and uh, more formal parts of the job. You know, if you've been working on something for three years, it's hard to motivate yourself sometimes to to get excited to come in and you know tweak you know the the eyelashes on Tiger Woods. You know, <laughs> uh, whereas in a game jam, you get to create the whole character. You know, and okay, it may be a lower quality and a bit janky, but that's the sometimes well. To my opinion, that's the fun part. Tell me a bit about yourself, David. What's your background? How did you come to lecture at the university? I mean, I grew up loving games. You know, my dad had a 2600 and I got Spectrum when I was a kid. And I remember the Spectrum had these cassette tapes. You'd press play and it would load the code in and I would press escape before the thing loaded. And if you press escape, you could go and edit the code. I used to put space bars in on the snooker table to make the pockets wider. I would I would edit the high score table of the golf game and pretend I'd got a hole in one, even though I didn't know how to get a hole in one, you know? And I was always a, a techie kind of tinkering guy. And I went and did computer science and I came back after a couple of years doing web development to, in my mind, become a game programmer. I did the postgraduate diploma at GCU. But when I came here, there was a lecturer at the time called John Sykes and he blew my mind. He changed me entirely um, in that one year from being somebody who thought that I wanted to be a programmer to make games to, to somebody who realized that the interesting thing about games isn't the technology, it's the people. It's the player experience. Games are not technology. That's just the, the thing we use to give games to people. Games are experiences. So that, that completely blew my mind and made me question what I wanted to do. After the postgraduate, I um, and, and a few friends and my brother, we entered a competition called Dare to be Digital that um, no longer exists, but it was a competition for graduates to make a game. It's like an incubation type situation. You spent a summer in Dundee, you made games over like 10 weeks, and then um, you, you had chances of getting some, some prizes and stuff. And we won one of the prizes. And on the back of that, I took a job as a designer programmer for a university in London. And that was the sort of quasi-accidental route that I had to academia because I had a really amazing amount of freedom in that post. I could design the game, I could program the game, I could manage the team, the artists that were working with us on the game. But by accident, I was in an environment where there was nobody there who was a games or serious game, educational game expert. So I had to learn how all that stuff works too. And that brought me towards research. And I came back to GCU in 2010 to do a PhD and become a lecturer. And I've been here for just over 10 years now. What are some of your favorite video games? I've, I love so many games. I love so many games in different ways for different reasons. Um, I think my all-time favorite is probably the Civilization series. Yeah, great. But uh, 
they're they're lovely and I, I probably put more hours into that series than any other series but i i love like i've been addicted at various times to john madden nfl i love the deus ex games of the freedom that players have to explore um situations and dishonored and mm-hmm. um, but i've even been addicted to games like puzzle quest and which is a matching three game with adventure i love card games my favorite card game of all time is a game called coup um, which we're going to be having a little tournament for at the Game Jam this year. So I've got quite broad tastes. Um, I spent many, many hours playing playing almost everything. That's why I'm a natural person to be involved yeah. in design. I find it all interesting. So then tell me, David, what would a student learn if they were to join your course? What sort of stuff do you teach them to send them out into the games industry? There's, there's two main courses we have at GCU. One is for art, and I don't really work on that particularly. And the other one is, is a, a, a games degree that you can specialize as a programmer or as a designer. And you can then focus on building a career in one of those two areas. Sorry, David, what's the difference between a programmer and a designer? That's actually a question I'm glad you asked. A lot of people don't know, even when they turn up on day one to the university. The way I think about it, an artist makes everything that you see. A programmer makes everything work and a designer figures out what should be there. So what, what is left in a game if you get rid of all the art and you get rid of all the codes? What's left are the structures, the rules, the all the numbers, like how fast should should Mario move? You know, how what what should that jump be? Like if you compare the, the jump arc in Mario versus the jump arc in Little Big Planet, they're wildly different. They feel different. There's an emotional reaction players have that's very different in those contexts. And yet, if you were to just list the features, they sound quite similar. And the game designer is the person who has the largest influence on that. So in, in practical terms, in terms of classes, you know, I teach the class that's about the fundamentals. Um, it's about game systems and game mechanics and how the meaning that players build up in their mind is the result of all of the little interlocking pieces of a game. You know, um, this might be a, a cup of tea just now, but it might be a cup of poison if you and I are playing a game of Assassin and you've stuck a, a post-it note to the bottom of it, you know, and you've changed the meaning of the cup, right? So that meaning is created by a game designer. It's made visually into a cup by an artist and it's programmed to do something by a programmer. Um, we also, in terms of the, design is really my focus, although I, I do a wee bit of the techie stuff. I teach a module on level design, game content design, we call it, because levels aren't just 3D spaces. Levels are the tool that you use to take that system that a game is and to let the player explore all the possibilities it offers. Yeah. So maybe we've got the ability to jump and to double jump and to wall jump in our game. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. What do you do with it? How do you make the player find that interesting? Levels are the tool that you use to, to guide the player through that. And we also teach HCI, how to evaluate games, how to test games. We teach serious games, how to use games to solve problems, to design for change, how to use games to support you know, dramatic change in the world, all kinds of aspects. And um, we have a similar set of specialisms on the, on the programming side. They do graphics programming, artificial intelligence, um, a whole bunch of st- stuff like that as well. We were talking about this, David, before we started recording, but how have you found teaching people online as opposed to face-to-face? It's a very strange experience. I feel like the world's worst YouTuber. Um, I was joking with you before we started that I, I feel like saying, don't forget to smash the like and subscribe button after every every talk. And it's the, what I like best about teaching is making that connection to people. I, I like looking people in the eye and reading their energy 
And I think that's my strength as a lecturer. And that's absolutely impaired by teaching to 80 black rectangles on, on a screen. I have to say that we're in a more envious position than many just now. And I feel very lucky and fortunate to have been in that position. But it's, it's definitely not my preferred way of, of teaching. And I find it particularly impactful when it comes to being able to play something that students are making. You know, the, if I'm teaching level design, I want to put my hands on the keyboard and mouse and run around your level. I want to show you how if you run down this corridor, you can't see the corridor off to the side because you've blocked it with a pillar or something. And to, for me to really do that, I need to be able to run around your level and point out all these little things to you. Um, and the same with prototyping. A lot of prototyping of games is done using physical materials. You know, maybe it's post notes on a wall, or maybe, maybe again, using my example of the cup, maybe we're going to, you know, have paper prototyping with um, cards and do all that kind of really agile, really quick, speedy thinking through of problems. And it's much harder to do that when you have to go through um, a computer interface. Although I will say that our students have done an amazing job of, of adapting to an, an incredibly challenging set of circumstances. So how well does the course prepare the students for the industry then? It's a, it's a very quickly changing industry, but I think the course does a good job of preparing students for it. It's it, Your job is going to end up being very, very specialised as a, as a game developer of any kind. So if we were to design a course to get you ready for today's job only, it would be out of date by the time you got there. So we try to give people an understanding of the general approach you should have. Yes, we use Unity and Unreal and all the current platforms, but it would be a mistake to just teach the platforms. You have to teach the techniques, you have to teach the processes, you have to teach the way to think and act and be like a designer. And we, we include some things that are cutting edge in the course that actually even the industry doesn't really use because they're not actually useful yet, but they are indications of the direction that the industry is going you know there's there's um like game design is a particularly strange practice game designers can be really really good at it but they don't necessarily know how to do it and that's a controversial thing to say but how does the centipede walk you've got a similar thing happening it gets inside people's bones so the way you get good at becoming a game designer is by doing lots of game design so that's that's the kind of fundamental perspective of, of the degree is that you do lots of it you use the current platforms you explore different aspects of it so that depending on where your interests um, lead you be it narrative or be it system design or, or combat scenario management or balancing magic the gathering powers you know is there's such a broad different kinds of experiences you have you get a little bit of a sample of all these things on the on the degrees and you get a chance to decide where your heart takes you. Now, there are a couple of issues with the gaming industry that I'd like to talk about. And the first one is crunch. What do we mean by the term crunch? Crunch is, um, crunch is it's a, it's a very loaded term for a good reason. Crunch is basically when people do excessive overtime. And it's the excessive part in particular that is the reason it gets called crunch. Mm -hmm. It's typically the result of poor management and also the fact that games are just so difficult to make. Um, they're difficult to plan, they're difficult to manage, we're getting better at it, but it, it remains challenging. And often, you know, a team will work for three years on a project with a deadline and the game isn't, it isn't ready, it's not good enough, it's not fun. And instead of having more mature mechanisms in place to deal with such things, um, the historic solution has been to just throw people at the problem, yeah. just 
work six days a week, seven days a week, eight to 12 hour days. And it's, it's a perennial problem in the industry. In some ways it's been getting better. There was a famous moment, I guess we'd call it, called EA Spouse, which was a, a letter that the partner of a developer working at EA wrote um, many years ago now. She's also a game developer, but her, her partner was um, basically never home. And there's, there have been subsequent like watershed moments where um, crunch gets highlighted as being a, a massive problem. Yeah. I think the industry still has some way to go before we can get past it, but it's, it's, it's not productive, it's not clever. It leads to burnout, it leads to divorce, it leads to health problems. It's a, it's a dangerous thing. And actually it ties a little bit to the concept of a, of a game jam in a way that makes me feel a wee bit uncomfortable. If you think about how I was talking about the jam being this 40 hours where you're making a game, you know, a lot of people approach that by trying to not sleep for the 48 hours. And I think that in some ways reinforces bad behavior. Um, but there is a difference between working really, really hard on something because you just can't get enough of it. And you're you're excited and your your motivation is intrinsic and it's coming from your heart. Yeah. And the alternative, which is where you're doing it either because you have to, you're being forced to, or because your peer group is creating a culture where you feel guilty if you don't. And this is actually the most recent incarnation of crunch no longer comes from enforced overtime by bosses. It comes from a culture of overtime, you know, i.e. you don't want to be the person that leaves early and lets the team down. That's equally dangerous and, and damaging to people's health in the long run. One of the games I sunk a lot of hours into, I think it was last year, was Red Dead Redemption 2. An incredible game, hugely detailed, massive world and a lot of fun to play, but that was marred by a lot of crunch. Do you think the public need to be better educated about what goes into video games to make them a bit more aware of the risks to developers and programmers and artists? I would certainly like that to be something that happens. And for, for many reasons, uh, I think if the public was more invested in the idea of looking after the people that create the games they love, I think that they would perhaps put some pressure on, on the, the management structures to look after their employees. But it, it goes a wee bit beyond even just the crunch aspect. I think that there's a, a tendency due to the lack of understanding of how games are made for some game players to make fairly reactionary responses to problems in games. And there's there's some funny, you know, not funny really, but there's some, you know, in, intended to be funny memes, you know, lazy devs, greedy devs, and people feel like game developers are sometimes choosing to punish them by delaying a game or, or choosing to, you know, not give them the features they promised. It's very rarely the case that anybody is ever out to get anybody. Mm -hmm. These things usually happen for reasons that are, you know, practical. Game developers, game designers, they know why they had to cut a feature. It was usually a compromise between deadlines, other features, things didn't work in practice. Um, and it's a really difficult thing in games where you're trying to get people excited to buy your game by telling them your vision. But then you get held to that vision and sometimes the vision doesn't actually work in practice and you yeah. find something else that's better. But, you know, if people don't understand how much games change, this is what I mean when I say at the beginning that game designers can create amazing games, but they don't know how, because it's not knowledge that does it. It's not, a, it's not like you're painting by numbers and you can easily tell what the finished picture is going to look like. It's a, it's a creative act. It's, it's, thousands and thousands of tiny little decisions being made all the time, almost always 
with compromises where you'll be losing things and making other things better. Everything is interlocked. It's it's a shock to me that anybody is able to make any game ever. All that ties in to, to the next thing I was going to ask you, David, and this is about games being released in an unfinished state. And one of the games I want to reference is Cyberpunk 2077. That was one of the most anticipated games of the last few years. It had been in development since 2012, and the hype around the game was huge. But when it was released, it was riddled with bugs and glitches, especially in the console version, and it was eventually removed from the PlayStation Store, and customers were offered refunds. I know that's quite an extreme example, but what happened there? <laughs> what happened there will probably be the result of uh, or be the, the focus of discussion of many uh, GDC talks and possibly master's research papers. I think in a very simple sense, we could say capitalism happened there. Uh, <laughs> they they had committed to some kind of timescale. They couldn't quite hit it, partly due to pandemic, perhaps, and felt the need to return investment and release a product, right? In one sense, we could say that. And in other senses, I think there are two different things that I think are perhaps not, where, where we can say that Cyberpunk didn't quite live up to expectations. So one is in, in some ways the actual game itself, um, if we, even if we ignored the kind of catastrophic bugs. And then the second thing is the catastrophic bugs, on, particularly on the console platforms. I think that there's a narrative reason, i.e. a whole bunch of things happened and they made decisions along the way that meant they started to focus on higher end PC. It was originally meant to be for the last gen of consoles and then they decided at some point to aim at the next gen and they didn't optimize early enough in the process, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that, I think the real, there's two unconscionable things I think they did. One is to release it in that state. I don't think that was appropriate. But I don't think it was intentional. I think that they always thought they were going to pull it out the bag. And I think it, this is, you know, the problem of um, having a relatively immature approach to development scheduling. Um, and I think the other unconscionable thing is the way that some members of the senior management threw the QA team under the bus. <laughs> because uh, to say that people didn't know the problems, I don't think is true. I suspect people knew the problems and management decided um, to go ahead anyway. The other way that it didn't quite live up to expectations is in terms of the actual design of the game. And that's a much harder question to answer. Um, mm. You you have you sell on the on the promise and then you hope you can deliver it and sometimes you you can't quite deliver what you hoped and I think maybe they just bit off more than they can chew but uh, I don't really know the answer you know I, I wasn't part of the team I don't have insider mm -hmm. knowledge really I think it's hard to make games it's hard to make triple A games it's hard to make triple A games in a pandemic it's hard to make triple A games in a genre you've not made before yeah and it's hard to do it when you have to stick to a deadline and you what they should have probably done in retrospect is to take another year. I think yeah. that would, you know. Times, hadn't it? Yeah, and that's why I said capitalism comes in because at some yeah. point you've, you 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 have to pay the piper and you've you've you know been fronted so much money from a publisher who very legitimately also needs to return on their investment, mm -hmm. and you know you have to decide when is the right time. And I guess it wasn't when they thought it was. Final topic about the industry that I want to touch on, David, it's about microtransactions. And this is something that's very commonplace in the very popular series, Fortnite and, and FIFA. And it's all about like, loot boxes and it almost encourages children to gamble in some instances. Can you talk a wee bit about that? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting phenomenon, the, the way this stuff plays out. I mean, there's so many different layers of it we could, we could dissect. So there's the... 
there's the original sort of aspect of loot drops that you know is where you you know you're you're killing somebody in the game and they drop some loot some equipment for you some goodies and there's a certain percentage chance you're going to get a really good piece of equipment and there's a higher chance you're going to get something mundane and that is a very incentivizing like motivating little piece of a pattern of design mm -hmm. so humans are very susceptible in fact you know many creatures are you may have heard of um skinner you know who's a behaviorist in the um the last century who you know taught rats to peck certain buttons to get food pellets and if they get a food pellet every time they'll stop when the food stops but if they get a food pellet sometimes they'll peck that blooming button for life because it's the there's something about the the percentage of times you get the goodie that makes you want to do it more you combine that with a fairly predatory um monetization strategy and you've got got yourself a problem you know if people are, are wanting to get the high quality stuff whatever that stuff is in your game whether it's whether it's packets of Magic the Gathering cards or whether it's um, players for your FIFA Ultimate Team, if you've got a percentage chance of getting them and that's coupled to uh, buying a packet for three pounds or something like this, I think it has, it taps into psychology, but takes from finances in a way that people can find quite unhealthy. But I think that's quite different to buying a skin or a character outfit in a game where it's not a loot drop. So the loot box, the loot drop phenomenon is where you, you sell a packet of random items and just, they're all weighted and you, you know, you're, you're, it's like you're playing one of those puggy machines in yeah, a casino yeah. or a pub. But microtransactions is just a term for taking a small amount of money and giving a small amount of content back. And actually, in some ways, it could be a more ethical way to allow people to play games because if you don't have money, um, you could play the game for free anyway. And then what you don't get access to is some cosmetic items that you would maybe choose to buy. So as always with games, it's about content, context and culture and about appropriate decisions. So the reason it's in the news is because people are making greedy, predatory decisions that are leading to large numbers of people making bad decisions, you know? Um, but it doesn't mean it has to be that way. And in fact, it's uh, it's allowed more people to play games. Having free games allows more people to play games mm -hmm. than if you require fifteen pounds up front for every game. I prefer the buying a game up front and playing yeah. it as much, you know. But it it's it's not necessarily, and it's not essentially like it doesn't have to be immoral. It's all it's how you use it. It's what you do with it. I was thinking when I bought the Final Fantasy VII remake, uh, and if I'd shelled out another extra fifteen pounds, I could have had additional uh, summon material. But we don't want to get bogged down in the issues that I had with uh, with Final Fantasy VII. Great game. Well, I'll, I'll give another example of a, of a way I think it's pretty good. Actually, um, I played Among Us, which is this year's phenomenon. It's a little online game where you you know you're trying to murder your pals, um, like all the best games. <laughs> um, and Fortnite, uh, sorry, Fortnite, Among Us. Um, it's free on your mobile phone and you can play it and have a great time and you can choose the color of your character and, and get hats and stuff like this for fun but you can also spend a couple of pound and get an extra funny little like pet character to follow you around okay. purely cosmetic changes the gameplay not at all it's just goofy and fun and i i absolutely bought some of those you know extra pets and things like that just for the sheer 
like laugh of it and to be funny with friends, you know. And I think that's very ethical. I don't see any downside to that, um, as opposed to some of the more predatory approaches. No, just listen, talking to you, David, it sounds like you really, really love video games and really love teaching students and passing on your knowledge. I, oh, I do. Uh, I live and breathe this kind of stuff. I I think that I think that video games are weirder and harder to design than almost anybody. You know, so the I'm just so curious about how on earth we do it. And that keeps me motivated along with the giving that to other people. That that thing I said at the beginning, how that one lecturer um, really blew my mind. I want to I want to try to do that to people. David, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you very much, Craig. It's been a pleasure. I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking with another member of staff from the university. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast. Podcast.